Okay, a bit later then. I'm going to continue today in the Epistles of John. We're picking up on verse 13 to verse 17. Picking up on verse 13 again from last week, because why not? Why leave it out? It's a good verse. John has repeatedly written about confidence in this book, in this letter. It's confidence in praying and confidence at the Lord's coming, at his appearing. And as he concludes his letter, John returns to this point again. Assurance and confidence in prayer. Let's pick it up from verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a maybe, it's not a wish, it's not a hope for. If you believe in him, you may know right now that you have received eternal life through trusting in him. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, when the Bible talks about God hearing us, it's the same as answering us. It's the same thing. He's not hear and might answer. He hears and will answer. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we've asked from him. John didn't just make this up. The same man wrote the gospel, which we preached through for a couple of years recently. And he's relying here on the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus said these things, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15. If you abide in me, that's to live and remain like like a branch in a tree. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Further down. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And further down again, in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. I want you to notice the word that Jesus uses every time there that he talks about prayer. It is the word ask. It's as simple as that, and yet nowadays people don't get it. They think you've got to do something else instead of asking. He teaches us to ask in prayer. Let's remember the keys to our prayers being heard and answers. It isn't in some trick or words of power, saying the right words, or, you know, saying them with the right attitude. Hallelujah. You know, whatever. In the name of Jesus. No. It's not about that stuff, that hype. It's not in naming and claiming. It's not in decreeing and declaring. It's not in binding and loosing. And I've given you some notes on those again at the end of the notes. I'm not going to go through them again today. It's these things. This is what Jesus says. We ask for Jesus' sake, which means in his name. It's for his honor. What will Jesus see, receive out of this? Honor, thanksgiving, praise, glory, fame? If it won't honor him, why are we asking? We ask for his sake. We ask according to God's will, his purpose. We ask in faith, 
believingly. We don't ask, you know, some people, you can pray yourself into unbelief, you know. You can pray and pray and pray until you're less confident it's going to work out than before. You pray and settle in your heart. I'm trusting you, Lord, for this. We ask in obedience, in good conscience, we abide in him. And his words abide in us. See, there's a lot of nonsense about prayer out there. about this. And, and it kind of falls into two very different extremes. For me. Some of us Christians are very lazy. We want a shortcut through prayer. We want the abracadabra, the quick fix it. You do this, you say that, and it always works. Prayer and faith are not magic. It is not a trick. We want to hear false teachers when they tell us, don't pray, just say, declare it. Why? Because it's a shortcut. So that's the one end. The other end is that there's a number of people who think it isn't real praying unless it takes all night or many days of prayer and fasting and many, many, many words. No, now we're really praying. Whoa! That's an extreme too. I come back again to ask the question, what did the Lord Jesus teach us, an example to us about prayer? Well, Jesus prayed. And yes, sometimes he did pray all night. And sometimes with loud crying and tears as in Gethsemane. But he also prayed briefly. He even interrupted saying something to somebody to pray and then come back to saying it again. Just in the middle of a conversation, Jesus would just offer a prayer to his Father and then carry on again. He always used the word ask when speaking of prayer. And he never used a lot of the things that modern day Charismatics and Pentecostals are so up with and fussy about. He never talked about those. Ever. He uses a very simple, plain word He challenges us to persist in praying and not to give up. To keep on asking. To ask and keep on asking. I've gone out of order here. And he tells us to ask in his name. That is according to his will and for his honor. We're to have confidence when we pray. This confidence has a word, is a word that means both free access and free speech. Confidence. If you were ushered into the presence of somebody, you know, we deem as important, maybe a prime minister or the queen or something, many of us would get tongue-tied. We'd be, oh, oh, uh, what what do we do now? What what do I say now? This is the opposite of that. You're confident you can walk in and you can speak. Confidence before God. Confidence to stand before Him and to speak before Him and to bring your request before Him with thanksgiving. Confidence confidence. John's already written about this in John 3 verse 12. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Confidence there is connected to having a clear conscience. We're not knowingly breaking his commandments and doing what is displeasing and dishonoring to him. We're not knowingly doing that. If we are, the Holy Spirit will show us those things as we Ask and seek God. Jesus put that as abiding in him and his words abiding in us. We're his friends when we do what he commands us. Yes? 
And if we, we know we're his friend and we're doing what he commands us, then we have confidence to come and ask. But here he talks about confidence being something which is about the nature of God. He hears us. Confidence and assurance is one of the great themes of the letter to the Hebrews. I'm going to do this backwards. I'm going to read a bit of Hebrew 10 and then Hebrews 4. Hebrews 10, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, there's the same word, to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's not this building, you understand? That's the throne room of God, the place of access to God. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. That's part of confidence. A sincere heart. In full assurance of faith. That's confidence in God, his nature. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I haven't got time to preach Hebrews to Let's go to Hebrews 4. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted, tried in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confident to come, confident to receive what we need. You might think cash flow. No, there's things far more important than cash flow. Grace and mercy to help us, to sustain us, to carry us through the difficulties of life. Confidence to come near to God, confidence to ask of Him, confidence that Jesus is our sacrifice and our great high priest and He's made every scrap of access we could possibly want to the Father. Confidence that in coming we are accepted, we are welcome, and that our Father will hear us and will help us. Here's the thing, let's get this straight. We're to have, when, to have confidence not in our prayers, but in He who hears our prayers. There's not confidence in your efforts. In the same way, let me say again, I refute, refuse the statement, have faith in your faith. It's not in the Bible. We are to have faith in God. The object of faith is not me, something happening in me, how I feel, what I think. It's God. Have faith in God. So our confidence in prayer is not actually in our praying. It's in God to whom we're praying. We don't make things happen. We ask Him to do them. Having looked at what confidence means, let me read those two verses from 1 John 5 again. This is the confidence that we have before. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Can we ask for anything? Not anything. No. Anything according to His will. Haven't you know God's smarter than you? Do you know what? He knows what's good for you better than you know what's good for you. We have our little ideas about, oh, that would be really nice if that happened, and wouldn't it be great if this did? And, you know, and, 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 no. 
You see, this is another thing where we struggle with prayer. We've been somehow tricked or, 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 or uh, slipped into the thinking that prayer is a way in which we impose our will on God. Prayer is how you get God to do what you want. It isn't. That's not what the Bible teaches. In prayer, we are seeking what He wills, what He wishes. Every true prayer is built around this. Father in heaven, may your name be honored, let your kingdom come, and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The rest is explanation and amplification. What is your will, Lord? What do you want to do here? Well, there's some things which are clearly his will. Number one, to honor his son Jesus. Number two, that lost people will be found. Including, we'll talk about another kind of lost people that you might not think about, but we'll come to that in a bit. That his name would be honored. That justice and mercy may triumph over injustice and unfaithfulness and wickedness and evil. Yeah? Some things are very plainly his will. So you pray for those things. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let the thing that reflects your name, your character, happen here. Is God good? Oh, we've got some theologians here. Good. Is God all wise? Is God all powerful? Then prayer must surely be about appealing to his goodness, his wisdom and his power and not me presenting my puny opinions. Well, I think it would be a good idea if you did this. All my objectives. Don't you know I need to get this to happen? What do I know? Not a lot. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it's finding out what is his will is, and then we plug into it and pray it through. We know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request which we've asked from him. Notice this, he hears us. It's enough to know that he's heard us. He'll answer and he will act according to his own will and wisdom and timing. And you know what? God's timing is very unlike ours. You want it now. God's now is a bigger now than your now. God's now stretches from the creation to the recreation of all things. He's the one who was and is to is to come. Don't talk to him about now. God is now. He fills all time. So your now isn't his now. Your sense of in a hurry isn't God's in a hurry. God's in a hurry to send Jesus back, but he hasn't done it for 2,000 years yet, and he's still waiting. So, you know, we have this thing about timing. We have this thing about urgency, and it just doesn't, God doesn't function like that. But here's a few cases where very graciously heaven or an angel from the Lord or the Lord himself said to some people, I've heard you. Solomon, the dedication of the temple, offered a great prayer. And the Lord said, I've heard your prayer. Hezekiah, when the Assyrians through Sennacherib were oppressing Jerusalem, prayed. And again, through a prophet, the Lord said, I've heard you. Hezekiah, again, when he was mortally ill, sent Isaiah to, the Lord sent Isaiah, who said, the Lord has heard your prayer, Hezekiah. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel said to him, the Lord has heard your petition. 
And Cornelius, the Roman centurion in the book of Acts, an angel came to him and sent Peter to him. And the angel said to him, your prayer has been heard. Let me pick up on Zacharias there. He was a middle-aged man. At least he would have retired at mid-50s as a priest. So he's middle-aged. His wife is past childbearing age. And he's, yet he had been praying that his wife would have a child. I wonder whether he'd given up when the menopause hit. I wonder if, if those were past prayers or still current prayers. I don't know. But whether Zacharias had given up or not, the answer of heaven was, God has heard your prayer. You see, it didn't matter if the prayer was somewhere in the past. Because God heard it and will answer it when it fits his wisdom. When it will have the most glory for his name. You see, is it, is it glorifying to God that a woman who is finding difficult to conceive conceives, or a woman who is past conceiving conceives? I mean, how many times in the Bible does God do that? Why? For his own name's sake. So that it is clearly the handiwork of God. God had not forgotten and had not ignored the prayers of Zacharias. His prayer had been heard. God chose how and when to answer it. Whether we have the answer or outcome straight away or soon is not the issue. If we know our prayer has been heard. Our faith rests in God who will do it according to his own wisdom. But John has a particular kind of praying in mind here. It's not praying for our own needs and wishes. It's praying for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Straight on from talking about confidence in prayer, John writes this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall, same word again, ask. And God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death to death part of the one another life of being a Christian is this that we we care for one another we encourage one another and there are times we confront and correct one another but even before we step in to say or do something John says this if you see your brother doing something a sin doesn't lead to death pray for him ask the Lord to give him life Ask the Lord to give them life rather than death. Deliver them from disobedience to obedience. Deliver them from wickedness to holiness. Continuing sin may lead to death. Not, I think, the loss of eternal life, but certainly natural death. Consider what Paul wrote to the Christians of Corinth. In the Act, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which is further down, particularly about the Lord's Supper, which we'll be having later. This is what he writes, verse 17. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together to church, I hear that there divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Then he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. 
And then he says, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That's about how we handle one another. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. What does the sleep mean? They died. They're gone. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God may judge his children in life so that they may be saved at the last day. We are disciplined by the Lord that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now part of that discipline is the care and correction that happens between us as God's children. In fact, that's really the first line of defensive. That's what John is describing here in this letter. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should make request for that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. I think this may actually work out in this way. As you pray for your brother who is sinning, God gives you something to take to your brother. He puts something in your heart to say, to do. How many of you have ever had the thought, just in the middle of a day somewhere, phone, phone, phone. Just as you're going around the day, you think, I need to phone so-and-so. Do it. Who knows whether God is doing something very much like this verse describes. God is giving you life for your friend. Your little ring and cheer rather than a phone and moan. Yeah? They just encourage them when they're going through a difficult time. And you don't know that. You don't need to know that. But you just follow the prompting of God the Holy Spirit and you bring some life to your brother or to your sister. Or pray for so-and-so. Just enter your head. Pray for so-and-so. Just do it. You don't need to know. You don't need to get credit. But you pray and God gives life. You pray and God gives life. It's God acting to rescue sinners and he's using you to stand in the place of Jesus, the good shepherd. In Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus teaches us a process of rescuing not people who are out there and don't know anything about Jesus at all, what we usually think of as a lost. He's talking about people who were in but have got lost. That's the context. The whole chapter is about rescuing lost people. I haven't got time to go through all of them. I'm going to read you the last bit of the chapter. It's about a lost son. It's about lost coin. It's about lost sheep. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? You notice that? It's a sheep that belongs to the flock but has wandered off. 
If it turns out he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, Christ is speaking of his followers, his believers, should perish. Notice the context. What does he go straight on to say? Good shepherd recovers lost sheep. Jesus says, if, therefore, should, you know, this is therefore implied. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won. See, Aloma's testimony earlier, she had a difficult conversation with her mother, but she won relationship back between them. Not quite the illustration, but all But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, little group of two or three, tell it to the church. The whole community, the whole fellowship. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me explain what that would look like. Okay, tax collector, not modern ones. We must mean nasty to modern day tax collectors. No, we really shouldn't be. Some go to church. You know? I mean, there's a guy who leads the church in Hatfield, and he, the, the Ealing pastor in Hatfield is a tax collector. But in those days, the tax collector was probably a Jewish person who worked for the Romans collecting Roman taxes. Part of the enemy. So what dealings do you have with a tax collector? Only the necessary one. To do your business. Right? But they're not your friend. You don't fellowship. Jesus is saying, if you refuse to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. There are, there are necessary bits of life you need to do, but you don't do more beyond that. Truly I say to you, context continues. Jesus is talking about this whole way this works. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. He's not talking about demons. He's talking about forgiving or retaining sins, receiving or excluding from this fellowship. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about how big a church does it need to be, just two, as few as two have this authority that Christ has given his church to make this sort of judgment and decision. And the fear of God, with great sadness, if two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, a church even as small as that, I am there in their midst. Peter gets the point. He says, Lord, how often shall my father, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He thought that was a good, good roll of the dice for that moment. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. All of that is connected together. It's one subject. It's how lost people are to be rescued and restored. Go and speak to your sinning brother. 
win him or take other witnesses again to try to win him. But if it all doesn't work, two or three agreeing together can bind or loose and forgive or retain sins. And when you forgive sins, you keep on doing it up to 490 times. And if you're still counting, shame on you. This is not theory. This is real life. Seeking to win back our erring brother or sister. Rejoicing when we see people rescued. Feeling that sense of winning when we've won. We've got that. We've helped my brother or my sister back on track. It's a win. People get excited about bits of leather going in the back of the net, for goodness sake. Get excited about lost people being restored and found and brought back. But we're sad and sick at heart when we fail to win. The goal is rescue. The goal is restoration. The process starts with a one-to-one conversation. We trust that God will help us to win that brother, sister through. It goes on to two or three going together to speak to them. It ends with the whole church being involved. However, in real life, it quite often happens that the person doesn't want to hear and doesn't want to listen, and they've, they've, they've gone one way or another before the process is complete. So in the end, every breakdown of fellowship and relationship that engages in this correction, caring, restoring process comes down to this. Very, very sadly, people are refusing to listen to those who love them and want the best for them and are acting on behalf of and on the instructions of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. They don't want to hear it come, always comes down to that. In the end, it's not even what they did. It's that they won't hear about it. They won't listen to help. What is the sin leading to death? Wouldn't you like to know? Why would you like to know? So you can do everything else but not do that one? See, Catholic theology says there are venal sins and mortal sins. There are things that are just part of you being a messed up human being and you can be forgiven those. But if you do those things, that's a, you're damned, you're going to hell. They're mortal sins, including those of, of, of murder and adultery and a few things, and, and blasphemy, and a few things like that. I don't believe it. You don't need to believe it either. It's not in the Bible. Do you know the sin that leads to death? The one that kills you. Let me explain. It's when God says, ah, enough. When God stops someone continuing in sin and rebellion by actually taking them away, making them mortally ill or bringing them to a sudden end. That is the sin that leads to death. I say again, it's natural death here. Let me give a couple of examples. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for their deception in the early church, for lying to the Holy Spirit. You think, well, they didn't do anything that bad. Yeah, but what God was doing was so good, it stuck out like, like, literally like the sore thumb, like a bad apple in the crop. God said, no, 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 that's, that's not happening. Not here, not now. God said, no, no. And they died. That was certainly a sin unto death. An incestuous man sleeping with his father's wife, a Corinth was handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In 1 Corinthians. 
It seems, if we put the story together in 2 Corinthians, he has to be received back because he's repented, which is great. But he was, by a decision of Paul, which was related to the church, put out. Handed over for the destruction of the flesh. If your flesh is destroyed, you're going to die. This is natural death. Others at Corinth, we read it in 1 Corinthians 11 earlier, had abused other Christians. Financially and, and, and emotionally and so on, they hadn't discerned the Lord's body. They, they, they were drunkards and gluttons at the Lord's Supper. And, and poor and humble people didn't have enough to eat. And they thought that was okay. What does Paul say? Some of you are sickly and some are asleep. I know this is very sobering stuff, but this is what I believe is true. There is a sin, there is a pattern of sin that will lead to death. Himenaeus and Alexander were handed over to Satan by Paul so they would be taught not to blaspheme. Whether they did learn or whether they died, I don't know. I can't even find out. Now here's the thing, if God is stirring you to care for a brother or sister and to pray for them who is failing and falling, I would strongly suggest to you that they, they have not sinned a sin that leads to death. Why? Because God's got you on their case. He stirred your heart to care. You got it? Yes. Do not think, oh, but they might, oh no, God might be destroyed. No, 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 if God's stirring your heart with compassion... It's because his purpose is still at work. And I suggest we need to pray like this for our friends. Lord, grant them repentance. Let them turn around again. Restore them to life and faith in you. Rescue them from this rebellion. And as we pray like that, the Lord may well put in your heart just the very third thing, the very thing you need to say, the very thing you need to do. It begins a process of rescue. Grace will be given you for them. See, we make the mistake of thinking everything happens directly, God to them, God to them, God to them. You know, God uses people, God uses vessels very often to carry something of himself. And you can receive grace for someone which you then go and give to them. In fact, that's the nature of what we call the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you a deposit of something, prophetic word, faith, the situation, whatever it is, and you have to go and give it away. It's not yours, you can't keep it. Oh, I've got this, oh, it's great, isn't it? It's given to give away. That's why it's a gift of the Spirit. Again and again and again. So as you pray and you're concerned for someone, don't be surprised if God says, now who am I going to send? Oh, you'll keep this you. Grace will pass from God through you to them. Now that sounds like a wonderful experience, doesn't it? I can tell you, it is. It's a win. It's a time for rejoicing. There's joy in heaven when lost people are found, when rebels are restored, when sinners are forgiven. That's not just true of those coming for the first time to faith in Jesus. It's true also of those who've wandered from faith and obedience to Jesus and are brought back through the cares and prayers of God's people. In fact, when Jesus speaks of a sheep that's gone from his flock or a coin that's been lost from the savings or a son has wandered from the family home, the context is his people going astray. 
the heart of the good shepherd goes out to find and rescue just one sheep who's gone astray. Is it working us when we care enough about our friend, our brother and sister to pray for them and then to do whatever God shows us to do that will play some part in rescuing and restoring them? If we catch this thing, that grace flows in answer to prayer through one to another, I tell you what, we'll begin to catch up with heaven. There'll be some joy on earth as well as in heaven. At the end of the book of Job, there's, there's Job's restoration, but there's an interesting note there. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. You ever read that? The Lord restored Job's fortunes when he prayed for his friends. Now these are the friends that have been giving my hard time for days. Pretending to be theologians, they were actually criticizing him all the time. They, the attitude was, well, you must have done something because God's really mean with you. I mean, look, I mean, you know, you must have upset him. Truth was, he hadn't. Job prayed and blessed and forgave his friends. And Job Receive the blessing of God. Isn't that the opposite of bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me? Gimme, 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 gimme. One preacher said there's a lot of gimme pigs around nowadays. Pray for your friends. Doesn't Jesus say seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, all of the things you would worry about and be concerned about will be added to you? Here's an example of that. Pray for your friends and see how God will bless you when you didn't even fuss about it. I wonder what influence and cash flow and whatever else the Lord might entrust to a person who wouldn't consume it on themselves but truly use it to care for and to bless others. What grace we might experience if we took concern for one another at our times of private prayer. And we're asking God for life for this brother, for that sister, for that lost person. Let's be praying for our friends. We're encouraged to use this confidence and access before God to do it. And sometimes when we do, the Lord will give us something to go and give away. We have great confidence from God to pray. Freedom of access to his throne of grace. Freedom of speech. Confidence that our Father will hear us. Let's use this great privilege for what really matters that both those who do not yet know their sins forgiven through Jesus and those who have the knowledge of Christ but have lost their way, they've gone astray, that these people be brought to life again in Christ. Here's a lovely verse in James. I'm going to finish with this and I'm going to be breaking down. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back. Let him know, the one who's done the rescue thing. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That sounds like a serious verse, but he puts a smile on my face. What a privilege! What a joy! to have been a helper with God, a co-worker with God, turning someone back. 
from being astray, saving their soul from death, and covering one or two sins. Now, even a multitude that's God's grace. And that's the privilege that this confidence and this access and this freedom of speech it opens this opportunity for us. We can do far more in our praying for people than we've possibly imagined, than we've ever thought. And it isn't about how hard you pray. It's about being sure that according to his will, according to his purpose, and this is his purpose. This is clearly his purpose. This is the heart of Jesus, the good shepherd that lost people be found. So when we pray for that, we know we're on track. We know we're praying for the right thing. Some of you have friends. Some of you have family. Before we break bread, let's do this. Okay? Why don't you just sit where you are? No, let's stand. Come on, let's stand. If we all make some noise, we can can not embarrass one another. Alright? I'm not saying you have to shout, but why don't you just open your mouth and, and, and say it quietly if you like, but bring people to God that you have concern for right now. Friends, family, some never known the Lord, others have known the Lord but have wandered astray. Ask God to give them life right now. Dare to do it. Be confident that this is His purpose, His gracious purpose towards them. He wants you to be involved in seeing them turn and restore to play a part in that, to, to have a win, that you get a win when you see them being restored by the grace of God. When you name them right now, and ask the Lord, ask Him to do that in them. Bring our friends, bring our family, our, our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, we bring them to you, Father. Oh, let your grace reach them and touch them, let them turned around to see your face. Let light and life again fill their hearts. Let them know the joy of forgiveness. Let them know the joy of your grace. Great shepherd of the sheep, it's your heart, your purpose to regather, to restore, to rebuild. On this side of eternity, there is still hope. When there's life, there's hope. And we're looking at people today and saying, God, you still have something we believe that you're going to do in them and for them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.